Keep. 
to sing together. Our, uh, our scripture reading this morning comes from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, you can turn there with me, and we'll be reading verses 11 through 12. We'll remain standing out of honor for God's word. The Bible is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative, conscience-binding word, and it's sufficient for all that we need in our life as we walk with the Lord. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. To this end, we always pray for you, 
that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. And in just a moment, we are going to pray together. Before we do, I just want to mention two things. First, we're going to be praying for uh, one of the missionary couples that we support. That's Tom and Marianne Barlow. They're serving in Birmingham, England. And so as we pray, we'll pray for them and for their ministry. And then second, we're also going to pray for the Go With Grace campaign uh, this morning and everything that's happening with that. And we also want to mention to you um, that we're looking for for people who might be interested in kind of uh, uh, intentionally praying alongside of us as we're uh, just pursuing that project. And if you'd like to be a part of that, you could sign up online. There's a place uh, on the website where you can sign up to be involved with prayer ministry. And we're looking for people who would just want to consistently pray for the Go With Grace project, that God would use that for his glory. So if that's you, you can sign up for that online. All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the God over all, or that this whole universe is in the palm of your hand. You rule over all things. You have ordained all things. Everything that happens in this world is according to your eternal plan from before the foundation of the world. Lord, you are holy, infinitely holy, beyond what we could ever know. You are good, you're caring, you're loving, you're gracious towards your people, you're patient with us, you're forgiving, you're also just. Lord, we thank you that, that your word holds out to us truth about who you are so that we can actually know you. And we thank you, and we know it's true, Lord, that you are great to the point of being unsearchable. We could never get to the end of how wonderful you are, how powerful and mighty you are, and we thank you that every day of our lives we can move deeper and deeper into that uh, quest of, of walking with you and knowing you. And we thank you for mornings like these to gather together, to be putting ourselves before your word and to be uh, in a position where our hearts would be led to see more of you and see more of your glory and worship you. Lord, we pray that that would happen this morning. We know that our hearts are fickle and we tend to wander away and even this week in so many ways we have been ignorant of your will and we've wandered away from it intentionally we've chosen to follow the things that seem good in our eyes rather than the things that are held out to us in your word and so lord we pray that you would recalibrate our hearts this morning but even more than that you would remind us of the mercy that's ours in christ we thank you so much for jesus our savior we can only be here by his blood shed for us, his resurrection. Lord Jesus, it's in you that we have life, forgiveness for every sin. We have an open access into the throne room of God, and we praise you and worship you this morning. Thank you so much for these things. Lord, we, um, we also want to pray this morning for the Go With Grace campaign that's happening here. We, we ask, Lord, that as we're trying to use resources in a way that would be honoring to you, give us wisdom, that you would give us discernment, that you would give us faithfulness in those things and in that stewardship. We know that everything we have, uh, building, property, resources, everything has come from you. It all belongs to you. It all goes back to you. So, Lord, we just ask that you would give us insight and wisdom as we try to do these things wisely. We pray that you would cause the new building going up to be a place that would be used for ministry that would bring people to Christ, that would build people up in Christ. We ask that you would cause even these, these small aspects of our lives to bring eternal glory to Jesus. And we just we thank you that you allow us to, to use our minds as we think about these things, to do things in a way that would be pleasing to you. 
And Lord, we, um, we also want to pray for Tom and Marianne. We thank you so much for their ministry in England, and we ask that you would uh, continue to use them as they are working with uh, the local church there and encouraging believers and evangelizing people in the community and also training other leaders. Um, we just ask that you would help their work to do exactly what these verses that we've just read talk about, to help people walk worthy of your calling, to uh, be used by you so that every desire for good and work of faith would be fulfilled by your power and that all of that would be to the glory of Jesus. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage them as well in the work. Would you sustain them and strengthen them and give them hope in a difficult um, environment for ministry? Thank you that you are the one who causes your word to go forth and bear fruit. And we pray that you would continue to use them as you do that in England. Lord, we love you. Thank you for this morning to be together. We ask that you would have your way in our hearts this morning. Please open our eyes to see the glory of Christ and help us to love him and worship him and be filled with joy this morning. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You're the center of the universe. Everything was made in you. Jesus, breath of every living thing, everyone was made for you. You hold
It is good to gather with you around the word and prayer and praising God with all our hearts and it's good because God is here with us and he is going to teach us as we open his word. If I asked you what is prayer, uh, you probably think the answer is really obvious and um, I would like to just say this, a confusion about prayer is at the root of many issues in the Christian life. Many people treat prayer as just another thing to check off a list. Well, I did that. You can think that you are praying and be doing it with the wrong heart, like unknowingly driving on the wrong side of the road. In Isaiah 29, God says, These people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You can talk about Marks of a healthy church all day long, but the marks of a healthy church are not our talents or our ministries or our hard work, but our prayer, our active dependence on God. John Calvin said prayer is the chief exercise of faith. Michael Reeve said without prayer, Christians are hollow, and that prayer is the mark of Christian integrity. And the truth is, the the prayerless thinly live like functional atheists. There are many people who will act self-sufficient and be unwilling to ask for any help. We can become much more like busy Martha doing our many tasks and unlike Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. You'll notice that prayer and the word are often found side by side in scripture. God speaks to us in his word. We respond in prayer. And yet we all struggle with prayer. In fact, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil are conspiring against prayer. But Jesus, the friend of sinners, wants to help you pray more purposefully and with integrity, more earnestly. We're in two verses today at the end of the 
first chapter of 2 Thessalonians, and these two verses show us the way. Uh, they give us a model of the prayer we all must pray. And it's the kind of prayer that every Christian should be praying for every other Christian. It's praying for what God said he will do. 2 Thessalonians, a very brief, short, three-chapter epistle, is like an emergency warning system. It's, it's telling us, be steadfast until Christ returns. It was written a few months after 1 Thessalonians. Paul was still in Sin City, Corinth, and he gets an update from Thessalonica. He finds out that the persecution had increased and some were despairing. He finds out that false ideas were being taught about the day of the Lord and some were being um, confused and, and worried. Then he finds out that Christ's return was being used as an excuse not to do work. And so he writes a second letter and he helps the church fight the persecutors and the falsehood peddlers and, and help discipline people unwilling to work. Chapter 1 describes this coming judgment of God. We've seen it. We're capping it off today with these two verses. Chapter 2 clarifies the details of the day of the Lord, so no one will be confused. And then chapter 3 very practically instructs on how do you deal with people refusing to work or people that are leading an unruly life. So far in chapter 1, we've seen right off the bat in the first four verses that the progress made by Christians is through pain that their faith was growing, their love was increasing. But it was all in the midst of problems that had occurred um, because they were fallen, sinful humans living in a fallen world, but also persecutions they endured due to their faith in Christ. And then we saw in verses 5 to 10 that the persevering church is evidence of God's righteous judgment. And that coming judgment will be fair, it will be fierce, it will be forever, it will be final. And that unlike Vesuvius, oblivious Pompeians, we must heed the warnings just like they did and respond in love for Christ and all. So that's what we've seen so far. And all of that then is followed by a summary statement, really, of what they prayed for fellow believers enduring pain. The prayer we all must pray. If anyone needed to pray in those days, it would be a new church and a bustling pagan city that was coming at it with godless fury. And what verses 11 and 12 show us is this kind of Christ-centered, theologically robust, God-glorifying prayer that believers should pray for believers. I think every now and then it's really helpful to take a step back and stop and examine how we pray. I'm not sure if you've done that where you just stop and say, how do I actually pray? What's the content of what I'm praying, and why am I doing it? I think it's easy to get in a rut without realizing it and go on autopilot and just rattle off words without a lot of thought. And what we have here is a prayer summary. It's not an actual prayer. They were saying, this is how we are praying for you. And so what I'm saying is, this is how we should be praying for each other, based on how they were praying for one another. And the runway on this is, this is all in the midst of suffering Christians. They're enduring, their future is secure, 
And we are praying for God to do what he has promised to do in and through you for his glory. And if anyone needs to pray today, it's every gospel loyal church that's holding firmly to the word of God in a culture that is hell-bent on overturning truth. While there are some, many actually claiming to be saved, who are jumping overboard. So we need to pray. The big idea is this, that we must pray for God's will to be done by God's power for God's glory. This is the summation of the summary of what they're praying, and it, it follows the pattern of a lot of prayers in Scripture. The calling of God and the power of God and the glory of God. That in the midst of suffering that they were enduring, while their future is secure, we're praying that God will do what he promised to do, that he'll fulfill his good will by his power and for his glory. This is what Paul is telling them, we are praying all the time for you. Like, thank God that, that your love is growing. Thank God that your faith is increasing. Thank God that your gospel witness as a church is shining bright in your pain. And the steadfastness that you are displaying is evidence that God will righteously judge those against him. But also there's this blessing that is coming your way, and we are always praying for God to do what he promised to do for you. We're praying for God's will to be done by God's power for God's glory. This is the summation of the kind of prayers they were praying. This is the summation of the kind of prayer we must pray for one another. The first thing we see here is that we must pray for God's will to be done. Verse 11 begins this way, to this end, because of the spiritual battle that Christians by necessity are in, we always pray for you. This is awesome. Paul and his friends are doing exactly what they told the Thessalonians to do in the first letter. First Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. They're doing that. He said this elsewhere in Romans 1.9, God is my witness. Without ceasing, I make mention of you always in my prayers. In Ephesians 1.16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. He's saying we always pray for you. And they backed it up with action like they really did. You know how many times we tell someone, I'm praying for you. We toss up a quick one and then it's like, we forget. But how earnestly they're praying and it's in the present tense. We are praying like they're having a continual prayer vigil, like they're having a continual prayer meeting, and they're advocating on fellow believers' behalf. They're, there's this unceasing labor that they're pouring out in prayer, and they're asking God's favor on fellow believers. This is how we need to pray for each other. We pray for God's will, but what exactly do you pray when you pray for God's will? This summary shows us. The first thing you see in terms of praying for God's will is that that God would make believers worthy. God would make believers worthy. Verse 11, we always pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling. So the purpose of Paul's prayer, that our God would count you worthy of his calling. His calling is past decree that there's no falling away from, that, that cannot happen. It cannot happen that they would fall away when they're already assured of future worthiness based solely on the grace of God. All of this is based on the grace of God, verse 12 tells us. Like Romans eleven twenty nine, the calling of God is irrevocable. There's no uncertainty here. That's why the faint-hearted that were written to in Thessalonica could have comfort. They could be confident. They could say, wow, God 
has given this worthiness to believers. We didn't earn it. We didn't work it up. We didn't make it happen. And it's interesting. The security of God's purpose in his calling does not erase the need to pray for fellow believers, to pray for God's continued preservation of the elect. That salvation rests solely on the fixed foundation of God's faithfulness in the gospel, but until its actual accomplishment, and we would put it this way, that Christians are saved and being saved and, and will be saved, then we continue praying for it, which I think is reassuring. God's call is based on his choosing before the foundation of the world. None of our merit in salvation, not by works. We come to Christ solely on the merit of Christ and because of his mercy. But God will count us worthy because it rests on what he does by grace. And this is a theme of monumental importance in the Bible. This is what they're praying for. That God would call them worthy, that count them worthy, deem them worthy. You know the emphasis on Christ's return in the Thessalonian epistles and the end times kingdom emphasis. What it does is it extends the scope of the calling to future fulfillment of God's plan. The calling happened and, and it's continuing on and they will finally and fully be saved in the final full glorification of every believer with the Lord Jesus. And so the prayer is that God would deem you or make you or declare you worthy. He who called you by his own gospel to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, as chapter 2, verse 14 says. 1 Peter 5.10 says, The God of all grace called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And after you've suffered for a little while, in this momentary life, he will perfect, establish, strengthen, and confirm you. This is what he's praying for. Romans 8.30 says, Those God predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Romans 9 tells us that he pours out the riches of his grace on vessels of mercy, that he prepared beforehand for glory. There's a future that is secure for every true believer. It says even us whom he called by the gospel, an effectual call. This is why Paul could say to the Philippians, I press on toward the goal of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I press on because God is persevering me. He's pressing me on. 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says that you would walk worthy of God who called you to his own kingdom and glory. In Revelation 3, it speaks of those who have not defiled their garments, and it says they, would, they will walk with me. They shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. It's because God made them worthy. He gave them Christ's righteousness, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So this prayer that God would count believers worthy, they're praying for what God says he has already done. And what happens is, verses that we've read already leap back at us. That God has called us to his own kingdom and glory and that their, their faith is growing and their love is, is increasing and they have steadfastness as verses three and four says. And it's their faith in all their persecutions. They're continuing on. Because God provides the worthiness. God provides what we need. We're clothed in Christ with the righteousness of Christ. We don't, you know, some of you make your own clothes. Some of you buy your clothes. Some of you are gifted your clothes. But here, the clothes of the Christian are given by God, and it's a great exchange. It's his robes of righteousness for our filthy rags, our filthy garments. Matthew 22 speaks of, of being worthy or not worthy 
to go to a wedding feast if you have the wedding garment or not. The question you have to ask yourself is not, where can I get myself or make myself one of these garments, but am I clothed in Christ's righteousness by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? That's what you need to know. In Revelation 19, it speaks of fine linen, just the righteous acts of the saints, that it has been granted to be so arrayed by God that God prepared beforehand the good works that he intends for us to walk in and the righteous acts of the saints didn't get them to that scene in Revelation 19. God brought them there and they would heavily engage and desire it because he granted it to them. That we are, if you are in Christ, secure in Christ, you've been chosen by God the Father, you've been redeemed and purchased by God the Son, and you're empowered by God the Holy Spirit. That God has provided for Christians. The requirements are met in Christ. That God has qualified us to have an inheritance, to share an inheritance with the saints in light. That we are now dressed in the righteousness of Christ and now have readiness for the return of Christ so that we serve him with all our hearts until he returns. You're one of the family if you're in Christ. You're accepted when you're in Christ. It's like your family, you, the door's unlocked, family doesn't knock. Family walks in, you belong. You sin, you repent. You're appropriately disciplined, mercifully loved, undeserving, but kept. Not like what some people do, cutting people out of wills or disowning them. God does not cut his own. So this prayer to be counted worthy of the calling is because God has called and it's an effectual call and it is secure and, and you know, it comes through suffering for Christ. The, the, the purification of a believer comes through suffering for Christ. This is what we see in both of these letters, First and Second Thessalonians. You see it in First Peter. You see it all through the Bible. True believers suffer. Samuel Rutherford said, crosses form us into his image. That they cut away the pieces of our corruption. You prayed, Lord, cut, carve, wound. Lord, do anything to perfect your image in us and make us fit for glory. God's purposes are as good as done in the mind of God because he determined and decreed that it would happen and, and God is pleased when we align ourselves in daily living with his ongoing program that we work it out as he works in us like Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. Some of you, are, when you hear about worthiness and, and you're a believer but you say, that can't be me Maybe every other Christian I know, but not me. But if God declares you worthy in Christ, don't deny his right to determine your destiny. Paul prays for what is certain. Our minds wrestle with praying for something already fixed in the unalterable purpose of God. I mean, we wrestle with that, don't we? In fact, it, it could come across as, well, do we think it's in doubt? Is that why we're asking for it? Absolutely not. The reason we do this is because this is the scriptural model. This is the pattern to follow. This is what Paul did. I mean, you even see the New Testament closing with a prayer for the already certain return of Christ. 
Revelation 22, come Lord Jesus. It's certain he's coming, but the true believer yearns for it and asks for it, prays for it. I want you to see something in verse 11. You'll notice that it says we always pray for you. It's very personal. We pray for you. And it says that, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every desire for good and every work of faith by his power, that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and that you in him. It's you, 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 you. But you need to see what, what you is referring to here. And you need to take it very personally, but not absolutely privately. The New Testament, when this is, when this is being written, it's written to a church, and when you here is plural, it's written to a local church. So you have to take it personally, but not individualistically. You take it personally as part of a local church. You apply it to your heart, to your life, to your household, as a part of a local church. So certainly apply it individually as a member of a local church, but not individualistically, and I hope you see the distinction. The difference between seeing things individualistically versus taking things personally as part of a group that is, that is journeying on their way to heaven. Part of a local church. Paul uh, is speaking to the church, and of course to the people in the church. But it's not where one person can just take this and say, you know, this was just for me in, in the sense that the letter came and it said, you know, this is for uh, this individual and no one else. It's for the church and it's for the church to live out together. And I hope you make and see the distinction. It, the local church is, is who's being written to. Spurgeon called the local church, by the way, the dearest place on earth. It's my favorite place to be here with you. But I could go anywhere in the world right now and walk into a, a, a church that loves Christ and clings to the word and feel like it's the dearest place on earth. But even more so when you know the people. A heart's desire as a church together is to glorify God through lives transformed by the gospel of Christ. That we would walk worthy of the calling of God to salvation that we who've been brought by God's grace to repent of sin and believe in Jesus for salvation, baptized upon profession of faith, that we are in the church and Jesus is the head of the church and our allegiance is to him and his word is the ultimate authority in every respect and that we want to live lives empowered by the Holy Spirit and deny ungodliness and walk in newness of life, that we want to have a Christ-centered community that is intent on proclaiming the gospel and making disciples and sacrificially serving Jesus. That we want that because that is greater than what the world offers. That we want to gather regularly and not forsake our assembling and not neglect to pray for each other. That our lives would be woven together in brotherly love and live peaceably with all as far as it depends on us and preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace that's what we're praying when we pray that God would make believers worthy. That our life, that our, our, our household, that our church would, would reflect hearts reborn. That it would reflect people transformed by the grace of God in the gospel, in Christ. 
We're praying for God's will, and the first thing we see you pray is that God would make believers worthy. And the second thing we see is that, that God, according to God's will, this is praying for God's will, that God would fulfill every desire for goodness. That's what verse 11 says. We always pray that God would make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every desire for good. Paul is praying with an objective that God would fulfill or accomplish every good purpose, literally every resolve for goodness of every believer. Paul prays really for the desire that produces goodness, that there would be an active, constant pursuit of what is right and beneficial for others by those in the church, and and knowing that it flows from God's sovereign goodness. So the well never runs dry. That goodness is a fruit of the Spirit of God at work in the life of a believer, and it is absolutely opposed to planning out evil. That it's where you actively hunt down what is good. Some of you like to hunt. You hunt looking for something that will be good. You seek after good. Now, the Christian is to seek after good, but it's interesting that there are places in the New Testament, and one in particular is 2 Timothy chapter 3, that basically shows the huge contrast and says, you need to seek good, but there are people who are absolutely doing the polar opposite. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says this, understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. All those bad things, and then, of course, they're not loving good. They're not seeking good. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. And then Paul tells Timothy, avoid such people. The polar opposite is what Paul told the Philippians in Philippians 4 verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable and just and pure, and lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Like set your mind on these things. And then what you have learned and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Think about them and practice these things. I was talking to a friend just the other day and they're struggling through a lot of negativity because things are coming at them in a negative way and they're taking it negatively and and it's just a downward spiral. I gave him an idea. I said, why don't you do this? How many years have you been married? I said, okay, that's a lot of years. Write down every year and then write something good you remember for that year. Just remember what, is, what, what God has granted that is good. I think it'll help you as you're navigating some bad stuff. Like, remember good. Keep seeking to do good and, and see what God has done in such a good way. God does good works. God does good work. I, Nehemiah, when, when he was uh, wanting to do something good for the people and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, he said, the good hand of my God was upon me. So he was able to do good. Now, this is interesting. You look at this letter, and we've gone through 10 verses already. 
And it's all about judgment on those that are persecuting Christians. But the prayer summary is, is astounding. He's spoken of judgment. Now he's encouraging those not under the judgment. He's saying to them, you're being persecuted by those who are under the judgment, but, but here is what God has for you. That, that every good thing that a group of believers would want to do, everything aligned with the word of God, that you, the church, would be a- enabled to do and empowered to do, and that God would grant good. The key distinction is good. Not calling bad good and doing that. But, but a key distinction would be really good. Aligned with God's word, aligned with God's will. I know of people that are being harassed by cults like Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses that peddle falsehood. Probably most of our brains are, are being harassed by the cult of personal autonomy that has um, just gone like wildfire and un- unhitched life from the uh, adherence to the word of God. I think about those that are most vulnerable around us, our children and grandchildren and teens that are, think about this, right now, more teens than ever are questioning and confused regarding their identity and their gender. More teens than ever. I was watching a program the other day, and there was a transgender activist psychologist that admitted, they were asked the question, why has this increased? And what they said was startling, and I don't think they realized what they said. They said it's because of wider social acceptance. It's because it's being pushed in the public square. It's because people are being told that's okay. And they even went as far as to say because it's being marketed well. And that's no longer considered a mental disorder. We talk about praying that God would fulfill every desire for good. We don't mean your truth or what makes you feel good. But what does God say is good? What does God want? It's about his will. That, that you, if you're a believer, you can rest in the fact that God accepted you and put you in his family, put you in the church, and be determined to continue in him, seeking good. I mean, just being here with you reminds me of all the good that God has granted to us. To love everyone in this assembly regardless. I, I always feel for those who feel unwelcomed or left out in a local church. And what I've found so many times is oftentimes those who feel unwelcomed or left out, they still love regardless. Because they say, well, Christ first loved me. I'm going to take seriously the call to love. And I think about the idea of loving all believers. God has recently been showing me, as I've been reading John Owen a lot, just this idea. He had a a sermon called Gospel Charity. I just came across it in the last month. And the, the idea of loving the body of Christ simply because you're in the family of Christ, even when you don't know them all. And it's interesting. I used to say, well, if you can't love the ones in your local church, how can you say you love all Christians? But what if you looked at it this way? You go into it and you say, I love all Christians, no matter if I've met them or not, because most of us have not met most Christians, okay? We know the people in our local church. But I love all Christians no matter what, because I'm in the same family as them. 
So then when you meet them, you have a better chance of loving them. And then when you see the people in your local church, you have a better chance of loving them because you already decided ahead of time you love all Christians. That's what I'm learning. The church is being addressed here. And we always pray for you. And we always pray for you with the will of God, that God would make you worthy of his calling and also fulfill every resolve for good. You know why? Because the church is more than a place you feed at. It's a community of faithful fellowship that you do good works because God is good and has prepared them for us. He has set the table. He has put out a lavish feast of good. And what we need to do is just redemptively interact with fellow Christians, with the culture, with people who are twisting scripture to get what they want, but know that, that, that we need to be loving and firm with the truth, but good is not a moving target. That it's an objective standard regulated by God. And so we must pray for God's will, that God would make every believer worthy, but also fulfill every desire for goodness. And a third thing, along the lines of praying for God's will, that we see in verse 11, that God would fulfill every work of faith. We always pray for you that our God would make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. Now, this is awesome. He's praying for this even though he's already seen evidence of it. He already saw every act prompted by faith and work produced by faith, but there's always room to grow. That's why in in the first letter he says, we remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patient endurance in in our Lord Jesus But then he prays that their love would increase and grow for the Lord and for each other and for all people. The work of faith is to believe in Jesus. Uh, As Paul told the Philippians, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. And, and, And the writer of Hebrews says we need to be looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we pray like this We pray like this because we walk by faith, not by sight. That we're in a spiritual battle for minds, especially the most vulnerable, and there's a war for truth, and bad theology gets passed down, and good theology gets passed down, but it's not your truth. Again, it's not what makes you feel good. What does God say? What does God want? What's his will? And, And we pray God's word and his will over the body of Christ. Because, as he told them in the first letter, the word of God does its work in you who believe. And we have a more sure word. Everything else is shaky, but we, have a, we can have as a, as a church a ministry of the word and prayer in public and in private where we live confident in the Lord who gave the word and hears our prayers. It's interesting that he says that, they, that, that God would fulfill the desire for goodness and that fulfill the work of faith. That word fulfill literally is the same word that's getting used for being filled with the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18, being filled with the fruit of righteousness, Philippians 1.11, being filled with the knowledge of God's will, Colossians 1.9, being filled with Scripture, Colossians 3.16. He's praying that your life, that the lives of fellow believers, that this church, other churches, would be characterized by victorious faith in Christ, rooted in Christ, pleasing to Christ, blessed by Christ, every other good thing that Christ does. And not with fear, but with faith. Even as you brace yourself for opposition. As someone said, the further a society moves from the truth, the more it will malign those who speak it. Spurgeon put it this way, bold-hearted men are always called mean-spirited cowards. This world has nothing for you. 
It will not love you. It will not accept you. When you live convictionally different lives, even in, in a very loving way, you will be rejected, you will be resisted, you'll be ridiculed. And as times get darker, the contrast will be seen more clearly. It's like Peter said, the testing of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested with fire, may be found to result in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, the appearing of Jesus. But right now, you have not seen him, but you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, even in the midst of the pain. This is why we must pray this way for each other. We pray for God's will to be done, that God would make believers worthy, that God would fulfill every desire for goodness, that God would fulfill every work of faith. This is like praying the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done. And it's not just that we should pray for God's will to be done. As you move on through this very short passage, you'll notice that you, you pray for God's will to be done by God's power. Not ours, but by God's power. We always pray, verse 11, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. So only by the power of him to whom we pray. In Zechariah 4, 6, we see these words. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What he's saying is, not by human might, not by human ingenuity, but only by the power of the spirit of God will God's work be done. You'll notice that he says in verse 11, our God, may our God do this. They're depending on the deliverer who fulfills by his power. It's replete throughout the entire Bible, this kind of idea that God accomplishes his work by his power. Psalm 138, the Lord will perfect what concerns me. His mercy endures forever. And then do not forsake the work of your hands. Do you notice? God will perfect. The spirit of God is inspiring this and saying, God will perfect what concerns believers. And then the prayer, do not forsake the work of your hands, right along with the will of God. Isaiah 66, 9, will I bring to birth and not cause to bear fruit? Isaiah 25, 9, it shall be said, this is our God. We have waited for him. He will save us. This is Yahweh. Daniel's friends said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us. He is able, and he will do it. That's why Paul said to the Philippians, well, I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ. This is why the prayer uh, that Paul prays for the Ephesians is, is so closely aligned with this. He talks about the exceeding greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. So his greatness toward us to believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We're talking resurrection power. We're talking God Almighty power. This is about the authority of God, the keeper of our faith, who watches over our souls and does his work and by his power for his glory. As Colossians 1 says, according to his power that works mightily in me. Which I think is a good thing to do for us to take a step back and go, it's God's power that accomplishes anything good and that accomplishes the work of faith it's by his power. You take a step back and take a long view and say, wow, God has folded me into his sovereign plan laid before the foundation of the world and uses me in real time with my fellow believers and we can't see it all. It's like when you're hiking and you can't see past the hill or past the mountain until you get there and you can see further. 
But we're in God's hands, and he knows, he knows every thought. He knows every prayer. He knows every persecution. He knows every sin. He knows every repentance. He knows every prayer and praise and cry from your heart and every wound inflicted. And someone shared with me a little thing that I think is, is good. It says this, the kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it's beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. And nothing we do is complete, which is a way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No program accomplishes the church's mission fully. No set of goals and objectives includes everything. It may be incomplete, but it is the beginning, a step along the way. And it's an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between being the master builder and the worker. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds already planted, knowing they hold future promise. And God's the only one that can take an acorn and make it into an oak tree. We can't do everything. But, what, but that knowledge frees you and I to do something well, do something good by faith. The one thing we need to keep straight, though, is that while we care deeply and we want to do good and walk by faith, we shouldn't try to carry the, the weight of the world. I think this is an important thing to say in this moment in which we live, that you need to do something, but don't give yourself a spiritual hernia, you know, trying. You're not built to bear the full weight, the burden of the world. I think sometimes we live with guilt overflowing because we didn't do enough. We're not made to bear the weight of the world's tragedies. The fact that we're connected everywhere at every moment, we can see everything going on literally within seconds after it happened, might hinder us in some ways. There's a lot of good to that, but there's, there's some hindrance. Sometimes you, you might look back and go, you know, the, uh, the globalized ignorance of previous generations may have been better in some ways. Right now, we see every hurricane, every shooting spree, every traffic accident. We see every disaster, every war, and we feel that we need to do something, and we're told we have a responsibility to do that. But knowledge is power, and what can I do? And the problem with that is that we're going to live either feeling good about ourselves or guilty. I did enough, or I didn't do enough. I did my part, or I should have done more. And what happens often is the weight of obligation weighs heavy on us. As one person put it, the endless cycle of obligation. What we need to do is bear the burdens. We need to care deeply, but know that we can't solve every problem and we're not sovereign. God has given us a heart for him, for, for the church, for the nations, but bearing the world's weight is his job. And he is never on vacation. So we pray for God's will to be done by God's power through us. And then one more aspect of this passage is very important for us because there's the ultimate, the ultimate goal, ultimate purpose, that we must pray for God's will to be done by God's power for God's glory. Pray that God would be glorified. Verse 12, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. This is the purpose of the prayer, that the glorification of Christ in believers and they in him. So think about today. We are one step closer to final recognition of the Lord's worthiness and majesty and our full participation with him on that day. The name of the Lord would be glorified. Name in scripture refers to the dignity and the majesty and the power 
of the Lord and his revealed character, everything about who he is and what he does. And it says that he would be glorified in us and us in him. It's the idea of him dwelling in us, indwelling, where we're fully indwelt, Christ in us, our hope of glory. We are kept, we are owned. Our life will one day be fully realized in Christ, that we will have what we possessed but didn't fully experience. There will be an assurance, there will be a wonder, that glory, that that's a future union with Christ, with his people, that we will share glorification together, that we will praise the glories of his grace forever, uh, that it, and it's all according to, the, to his grace. That, that phrase at the end of verse 12, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is prayer that we all should pray in harmony with the outworking of God's gracious designs that he will be glorified in us as we participate in glory with him and we will marvel at Christ eternally. Eternally. And you see these similar themes in, in biblical prayers in Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3. The, the calling of God, the power of God, but the glory of God. The glory of God, the magnificent glory of God. You know, every time the glory of God comes into play, people know it. You see in the Bible, you see, no, you know, there will be a day when there will be no more Moses veiled fading glory. It will just be, we will know as we have been known. We will see face to face. But every time you see it happen in the Bible, this side of glory, you see fear. Isaiah 6, in the presence of a holy God. And he heard the voice of God, thundering, and he felt doomed. Woe is me, dread, fear. But then he got reassurance of acceptance, reassurance of forgiveness. Isaiah 66, God says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool, all these things my hands have made. So all these things came to be, and this is the one to whom I will look. He says that, he's saying, this is the one to whom I will look with favor upon. He who is humble and contrite of heart and trembles at my word. On the Mount of Transfiguration, it's recorded in the Synoptic Gospels in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. When they heard the voice of God, they were afraid. They trembled at the word of God. In Christ, there's no fear of wrath. There's reverence for God. Sometimes people will talk like this. They'll say, um, when you get up to the pearly gates... And God says to you, why should I let you in? What's your answer going to be? And you know, that, that sounds good and everything, but it's not the way the Bible says it's going to happen. <laughs> if you're not going there, you're not getting to the gates, okay? I'm just saying right now. That will not be asked. If you're all the way to the pearly gates, he's going to say, enter the joy of your master. In Habakkuk 2, it tells us that the earth will be filled with the, glory, with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The gospel of the grace of God in Christ, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God seen in the face of Christ, where you would see it and behold him. This is, the, this is the describing a believer. You see the gospel truth of Christ crucified, risen, coming again, died for our sins in our place, and you accept that truth. You receive Christ. You believe in him and are saved. That's why Paul told the Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Titus, the grace of God bringing salvation has appeared. 
Revelation, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And grace is the source of everything. We're saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God saves us from his wrath and by his grace and for himself. That God made you for him to know and love and serve him. And every Christian will be with him when he returns. We will serve him until he comes. That's why we can come boldly to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We come humbly, not proudly, because there is a future glorification in store for us. And that future glorification eclipses and really encompasses all of justification and sanctification and perseverance. And we know it will happen, and we are praying for it will happen. We're praying for it to happen. Joy inexpressible, filled with glory. It's like coming through a tunnel and seeing daylight. I was in a six-mile tunnel once, six-mile long tunnel in Europe. And I knew there was, a, there was an end to it because cars were coming through from the other direction, but it was excruciating. And there was moments it was pitch black, and I thought, will this ever end? Some of you feel like that about life right now. But all that is happening now is part of the process, and yes, there is an end, and Christ lives in every believer, and we'll be glorified in him. God wins. So we win. It's like rewatching that movie that you've seen over and over again. You know the end. God knows our glorification in Christ when we appear with him. So you can throw every confidence on Christ today. And what God's grace can do. God started the work in grace, so complete it in grace. And, and you're going to have to work through the delays, the, the clogged delays. We were putting up this, they were, the guys were putting up this uh, the big structure outside and and they got to this one part, they're digging 10-foot holes, and they said, we got this big rock in, the, in one of them, eight feet down, and it's not coming out. Well, they figured out a way to get it out, but it was big. And it, took, it, would, it delayed us. It was a roadblock, you know, for a few days. But what we are called to do is remain steadfast in prayer for God's will, by God's power, for God's glory. He made you for him, to know him and love him and serve him. Pray this way. The only thing that's going to keep you from praying like this is an, an outright refusal to do what the word of God says or a willful disobedience. Maybe it's a personal issue or a group issue or an offense you have against someone. Maybe you're willing to let people walk on your broken glass relationally. But this prayer, this prayer should be a magnet for our souls, where we just latch on. Our attention is like, wow, if, if Paul asked for these things, every Christian should. I, I know you get electrified by a lot of things in life. A lot of things just, wow, that's amazing. But we get electrified by a lot of things that pass away in life. Here's an opportunity to be excited about eternal things. You feed your prayers by confidence, knowing that God acts according to his own character. And it's all for the glory of Christ, who is preeminent, who's the greatest, who's the creator and sustainer and redeemer and author and perfecter of our faith. And he is great and glorious and he is incomparable and nothing compares to him. So we must pray this way for God's will to be done by his power for his glory. Oh Lord, we thank you that when your glory comes fully and finally, the work will cease. There will come a day when we will not do what we do now. 
but we will only worship you. That we lose this fact in ordinary life, but one day we will no longer take out the trash or go to the store or cook or clean or plan or budget or pay taxes or argue. We will no longer have to ask you for help with our burdens and troubles and sorrows and griefs and pain and tears and temptations and sin. That some prayer will no longer be necessary. But Lord, we thank you and praise you that there will become a day when we will pray gloriously and we will forever praise you, the King of kings and Lord of lords, because all will be made new in Christ. And until that day, Lord, we can't live without you. We declare our dependence upon you, asking you for your will to be done by your power for your glory. We love you, Lord, because you first loved us. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Stand with us as we close in singing. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sovereign in the mountain air, sovereign on the ocean floor.